Welcome, friends. This is the last episode of Season 2, Mexico, Reflections. Reflections on a Season. We want to thank you very much for listening, and we hope that the conversations we've had over the last six months have brought some clarity to the complexity surrounding the issues of tourism, exile, and radical hospitality in Mexico. The pod, as always, is a lot of work. This season, we've had uh, the very kind and sincere help of friends Adair from Ojo Viajero, Mim from Mitamin Lab in Mexico City, Patricia from Oaxaca, and Uman from Brazil. Lastly, uh, just a reminder, we have our Patreon page up at patreon.com slash the end of tourism. You know, running a podcast is a lot of work. And so I want to say thank you to our patrons uh, for keeping the the pod going. Uh, That said, if you've been listening, you know, and you've been interested in the conversations, you've been um, engaging in them with with your friends and family at home, uh, you know, it's, it always helps, uh, to let us know. Um, there are ways that you can support the pod if you can't financially, if you'd like to, if you can financially, you can do so at patreon.com slash the end of tourism for any amount. And, um, but if you'd like to get in touch, if you'd like to, you know, let us know how we're doing as well as, uh, you know, support in any other way. Uh, we're more than happy to uh, to listen uh, to what you might have to gift. So, thank you all, and here we go. Welcome to the End of Tourism Season 2, Mexico. During Season 1, which is available in English on all major podcast platforms, friends and strangers throughout Mexico reached out and asked for conversations on what is happening in Mexico. With episodes in both Spanish and English, we have delivered. The episodes will touch on diverse themes including gentrification, deforestation and climate change, displacement, spiritual and psychedelic tourism, ecotourism, hospitality and interculturality, the industry itself and the place of workers in it. We speak to activists, scholars, storytellers and workers in order to find out what is happening behind the scenes and what can be done about it. Season 2 is dedicated to our late friend and mentor, Gustavo Esteva, elder and co-founder of the Universidad de la Tierra in Oaxaca, Mexico. These episodes have been planned and organized in collaboration with our compañeros and compañeras at the UNITIERA Oaxaca. They are dispatches from the resistance. Good afternoon, friends. Strangers, travelers, this last episode of Season 2 Mexico is a bit of an offering of reflections. Now, we did uh, a version of this in Spanish with Wendy from the Unitiera Oaxaca, and uh, I'm not going to translate, I'm just going to um, go over some of the things that we learned over the course of the last six months in part through our interviews, through our reflections on those interviews and on the feedback that's come through from people in Mexico and beyond, as well as uh, uh, the things that um, have come up uh, as a result. So before we start, I'd like to first offer my uh, immense gratitude to the UNITIERA Oaxaca, the Universidad de la Tierra, which translates as the University of the Earth here in Oaxaca, uh, to their staff and to, uh, to our old late friend and mentor Gustavo Esteva, who passed earlier this year in, in March and who this season is dedicated to. Gustavo had uh, an idea of a project in mind before he died entitled Fuera Los Bárbaros de Oaxaca, which loosely translates as To the Barbarians in Oaxaca, Get Out. Um, now, it's a, certainly a 
some of some of Gustavo's dark humor as well as a kind of slight uh, sleight of hand way of saying um, that the barbarians are the tourists, that the barbarians are the foreigners, right? Now, Gustavo certainly had a sense of dark humor, but he also had a deep desire to build uh, interculturality and intercultural projects between people in, in this context of different nation states, of different uh, ethnic backgrounds, of different uh, languages. And so... That news came to me after his death that he had this project in mind, but uh, unfortunately didn't have time to propose it to me. Uh, and so we decided in partnership with the, the staff at the Unitiera to, and specifically Wendy Juarez, to, uh, to craft a series of conversations uh, dedicated to him and dedicated to... Oaxaca and Mexico, both in Spanish and English, as a way of contending with all of the themes that uh, are on the table, on the proverbial table, so to speak, uh, in our time. And as well, use uh, some of Gustavo's reflections on tourism, exile, migration, uh, um, gentrification, and, uh, and radical hospitality. And so that's what we did. And that's what we've been doing for the last half year or so. And um, so, you know, a deep bow once more to his mentorship and uh, willingness to proceed as if all of this matters in the world. Uh, it's very likely that this podcast uh, would not exist if it weren't for um, my friendship, my relationships, and my learnings, and the learnings that I had with um, with Gustavo, and uh, and of course the rest of the the team, the family at the the Unitera Oaxaca. So, um, fuera los bárbaros de Oaxaca, barbarians of Oaxaca, get out. <laughs> um, so that's you know that's. Even though that's a little under a year ago, eight to ten months ago, ten months ago maybe, and, and I guess a year ago now that he was planning that, that um, that's very much become a sentiment among a lot of people here. Um, well, I shouldn't say a lot. That's probably overstated, right? But um, it's probably overstated in the sense that you see it more often than it's actually felt. Uh, or, or, or agreed upon uh, in social media and um, on, on the walls, the graffiti here in Oaxaca. And so that brings me to our first, uh, the first episode that we recorded was with uh, Marcos Esmar that was entitled Resistiendo el Espectáculo en Oaxaca, Resisting the Spectacle in Oaxaca. And um, Esmar, along with some other friends, put together a, a zine that uh, was entitled uh, Desprecio y Despojo, Gentrificación y Turismo en Oaxaca. Okay, and basically gentrification and tourism in Oaxaca and the, the consequences of it, right? And, uh, and so we discussed, we discussed a fair amount of things. We discussed this notion of the, the spectacle, and we'll get to that in a moment. We discussed the what he referred to as the touristic apartheid, um, which you see in many, many cities throughout the world now, many tourist cities, which is basically a certain area of the city. Typically, the historic center uh, is turned into a kind of tourist ghetto uh, wherein local people don't live there anymore, right? Uh, it becomes essentially a place for foreigners to come and stay short term. And today we could say that those tourist ghettos have become Airbnb ghettos, right? That's definitely uh, the trajectory, the direction that um, the, the economy of housing in tourist cities is going towards. We discussed uh, the occupation of Oaxaca City by its occupants in 2006 and the consequences of that on tourism and how basically the government here used tourism as a wedge in order to stop people from uh, organizing uh, communally, locally, 
and certainly against uh, the government. Uh, and it worked uh, probably better than they imagined because, of course, you know, as I just said, this historic center, uh, which was largely a battlefield uh, during that time, uh, has become essentially a, a kind of, well, a tourist ghetto, for lack of a better word. We discussed gentrification. We discussed um, this notion of tourist etiquette, that when you go to a new place, you kind of try to act as the locals do. But what happens in a tourist city or tourist town when the locals have been converted into uh, vendors, right? That their economic lives uh, basically revolve around giving the tourists what they want, right? Suddenly the etiquette is no longer local, but it's become this globalized thing that tourism has brought in from outside, right? And perhaps at best, the locals have a way of mm, putting their own, you know, mother tongue or local language, uh, stamping that onto the interactions. So what your way of acting in a new place based on what you see isn't necessarily any longer um, something you can rely on as a kind of way of entering into unique uh, and and sincere intercultural relationships with other people, right? And we spoke about the spectacle. We spoke about social media and the, the rise of um, xenophobia, gringophobia, uh, resentment and even hatred towards the foreigner, right? And I would say that this uh, that xenophobia is is a word, um, or touristophobia is a word that or concept that doesn't really it's not accurate. It doesn't make any sense. I mean, we're, we're going to, we're trying to be accurate and, and honest and sincere in in our language, right? Um, but to be xenophobic, to be touristophobic, is to be afraid of the tourist is to be afraid of the foreigner, which is not what we're seeing, right? It's not what we're seeing in the streets. It's not what we're seeing online. We're, so what we're seeing is resentment. What we're seeing is, you know, hate. Uh, not always, but what social media does certainly is it, it has the opportunity for people to, to hide behind a screen, right? And, and even without doing that, to know that there's, Little response, pardon me, little, um, uh, well, we'll say that little responsibility that one has to bear because one is invisible for the most part, or at least untouchable in the sense that people don't know where they are and, and, and there's no real sense of um, enduring consequence for one's actions, right? And so social media, especially memes, um, memes and reels and, you know, all of the more TikToks and all of the more recent ways of communicating, which isn't really a way of communicating. It's just a way of vomiting, right? It's just a way of putting something out there. It's a monologue, much like this is, right? But in the context of these other mediums, uh, memes, reels, uh, and TikToks, I guess, while they can stretch into the minutes and maybe even hours, um, Generally, it takes someone a very, very short amount of time to consume them or to try to understand them or read them or, or, or view them, right? And so what this does is, is in, in an inverse context, is that it's actually demanding as little of you as possible, right? You don't, there's nothing required of you. And in fact, the medium, it doesn't matter what the content is. Right, because the medium itself is telling you that we can only fit this much information in this amount of seconds or in this tiny little square, right? And and then and therefore there's there's nothing really outside of this um, this square, this size, this shape of this medium that um, that will demand you to ask more. And in fact, the medium encourages people, uh, generally speaking, to, to not ask more, to just accept what's there in that, little, in that little bubble, right? And so this is what we start to see. Not only do we start to see a kind of 
um, petrified resentment that has very little context, um, that acts as a kind of cathartic drug. Here, here, take the take the pill, take the meme, put it on your tongue, swallow it, and you know, because someone else is thinking what you want to say but haven't been able to put together even in a single sentence. Um, well, I mean, that's, that's, then, then you get their, then they get their likes and, and all that stuff. Right. But what started to happen in Mexico, especially as a result of, uh, the inundation, the more recent inundation or wave of migration of foreigners, especially quote unquote, digital nomads from the United States, but certainly other places and certainly in other contexts, um, you start to see this resentment rising up quite a bit, right? In in Mexico City, in Oaxaca, etc. And these these memes, this media, etc., is not only being followed by. I mean, you see these accounts with tens of thousands, and sometimes even hundreds of thousands of followers. And it makes me wonder if is there actually that many people following them? Because you know, it's really easy to just buy followers that don't actually exist. They're just bots, right? So I wonder about that. And I wonder about it because at the same time, these people who, well, people, we're assuming they're people, right? That they're not actually bots themselves and things like that. That um, that traditionally this kind of, you know, leftist rhetoric, I mean, traditionally anyways, conventionally, uh, you know, the, the, the understanding of, the, the consequences of hypermobility and uh, gentrification and over-tourism, something generally taken up by those on the left. Um, but now the consequences of it is that there is this focus towards identitarianism. And what's happening as a result is that the people who are posting these memes, etc. you know, the resent, resentment, gringophobic um, uh, memes and media are now capitalizing on that in the very uh, sincerest economic uh, sense of the word, which is to say they are commodifying uh, this, their, their message, right? Turning it into products where I've seen recently, you can now purchase um, hats and t-shirts you know, on one account that uh, it's like says like I am gringo phobic, or something to that degree, right? And so, you know, it, it really this is you know it's very clear that this is not something that an anti capitalist would do, right? Um, or someone who is traditionally on the left in that in that regard. And so, so it makes me wonder who's actually behind these accounts, right? Because at the end of the day. It's not just that they're posting all these memes and they have this liberty to do so, etc. But and none of them are actually showing up with their own voice, with their own face, saying, "This is who I am. This is where my message comes from, ideologically, politically, etc." Um, none of them. Nobody. Nobody does it right. None of the memesters, and you know, not only is there a sense of cowardice in this, but it makes you wonder as well. Well. Why not? You know, if the message was so clear, so sincere, so important, why wouldn't you stand up and stand for what you're talking about? Stand for, you know, what you believe in. And that's because there's a real likelihood that these people are not leftists. They are not anti-capitalists and that they are, in fact, uh, trying to, uh, whether it's conscious or not, uh, drive a wedge into the possibility of uh, intercultural, um, you know, we could say meeting, we could say encounters, we could even say reconciliations, because that's really what um, an honest and and proper path, achieved path towards uh, interculturality would look like, was one based uh, in, in conciliation and where necessary, where applicable reconciliation. So that's a little bit of a reflection on, on um, this, what's, what's happened, what I've seen over the last six to eight months here in Oaxaca and Mexico City, right? Is that 
people really, really need to start questioning, especially these, you know, reels and memes and things like that, you know, where it's coming from. Because what I see here, especially people, quote unquote, on the left, quote unquote, anti-capitalist and all this stuff, sharing this stuff up, you know, because it hits that cathartic nerve. And it's like, boom. But guess what? You know, at the end of the day, you're fighting the enemy's battle for them. Okay. All right. So from there, I'll just uh, mention that we interviewed uh, the Wirikuta Preservation Project. And, you know, a lot of that uh, interview was based around um, some people that I met about a year ago in, the, in uh, this state of Mexico. And they told me about this project. And basically, it's an international uh, project between... Um, uh, the between some of the between one particular village in the Wiradica region of Mexico uh, of the indigenous Wiradica people and uh, and some of their um, friends and co-workers colleagues compañeros in the United States and the plan among them is to buy as much land as they possibly can in the area around uh, in the Wirikuta, in the traditional Wiradika territory, uh, in order to stop deforestation of uh, traditional peyote desert, traditional peyote lands, uh, as well as to stop um, mining, stop mining as well as, um, how would you say it, tomato, uh, large-scale tomato farms, uh, which are often being financed in part or at least um, stewarded by by narcos by cartels here in the north of Mexico and the industry which is actually seeding the air there with um, uh, weather uh, how do you say this um, cloud seeding basically right weather um, manipulation because it's a desert and because tomatoes sure they need lots of sun but they also need water right so all of that's going on in the north and i'm proud to say that the the wpp they uh they succeeded in the the next step of their uh, fundraising goals and so the what they had set out about a year ago um was was properly financed and they're going to continue in this way because at the end of the day this is a huge huge area in the north of mexico that spans many states and so this is uh the beginning of you know a really beautiful project we also talked about psychedelic tourism about this notion that you know there's so many so many ceremonies i mean in scare quotes in quote ceremonies because you know if these things are a dime a dozen now, are they are they still ceremonies? I mean, it may, really makes you wonder. <coughs> Excuse me. Ceremonies that are being marketed online. Again, you don't know who the people are necessarily. You don't know if their lineage or connection to the, the pueblos, the, the villages, the traditional villages and traditional communities um, is intact. If they have been properly initiated as someone who uh, can can steward uh, and and uh, facilitate these ceremonies, and so we talked a lot about that. And uh, you know, it's not even it's not just charlatans from other other cultures or other communities, but it's also people within the Wiradica nation, within the Wiradica pueblo, that are taking. Um, taking this this medicine and you know basically uh, capitalizing on it and 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 facilitating ceremonies um, without um, without authorization. And so it was a really great opportunity to speak with Santiago and and uh, Guadalupe from the Wiradica Nation about this and to hear you know so to speak from the horse's mouth what this is doing to their villages, both psychedelic tourism on one end and, and, you know, the conventional Western industries of extraction in their lands. And 
how guests in their lands, uh, how visitors, how people interested in the Wiratika nation and the Wiratika culture in we call peyote or hikuri, uh, and how such people can can act honorably, right, in accordance with uh, the ancestral custodians of this uh, incredible medicine, right, and plant and an ancestor. So that was a really, really nutritious, <laughs> nourishing. Uh, episode, I should say episodes. We did uh, we did two, one with uh, Guadalupe and Santiago, and then the other one with Alaira. From there, we went to the Yucatan Peninsula, um, around the areas where today you find Cancun, uh, Tulum, Merida, Valladolid. Um, and many, many other, uh, both tourist and local towns. And we spoke with Pedro Usi, who uh, is in part one of the spokespeople for the uh, Asamblea Muk Jimbal, the Assembly Muk Jimbal there, that is um, fighting against the construction of the Mexican President AMLO's pet project, the train Maya or Maya train. Now, uh, just so we're clear, um, among, among his people, nobody refers to the train as the Maya train, of course, because they never gave permission, of course, for this project, for their ancestral name to be used as such. Um, and so just a, a brief, um, Overview is that the, the train Maya, or the, pardon me, the Maya train, which we'll call the uh, the AMLO train for the sake of this episode, uh, AMLO, the acronym for the Mexican president's name. Uh, the AMLO train is basically uh, a tourist railway, uh, which will surely um, be hauling other things apart from tourists, but. Principally, uh, a tourist train uh, set to encircle the entire Yucatan Peninsula, and uh, you know, it's it's just mind-boggling that uh, the construction started and that it even continues when uh, none of the local communities gave their their uh, okay on the project, as well as um, the incredible amount of environmental scientists that have spoken out about this as just being one of the stupidest things that anyone can do, you know, in part because the Yucatan Peninsula is, has a soil quality that is more or less limestone, okay, which is to say it's extremely fragile. And this is why you see uh, what are referred to as cenotes, in the Yucatan Peninsula, these these massive sinkholes, um, where that are that themselves have been turned uh, into uh, tourist attractions, and that sometimes are 50, 60, 100 feet deep, right? And so, uh, <laughs> the the Mexican federal government, in, in in concert with with state governments in that area, are basically building railways on top of um, on top of sandstone, right? On top of limestone. And you can just imagine, you know, with, with any ma- with any kind of train today, it doesn't matter how much, how many people you have on it, etc. You're just asking for it and it will happen, right? They are probably going to push ahead, right? To finish this thing and say, look, look what we did, right? <laughs> And it probably won't take long for it to become um, one of the most uh, uh, ridiculous and, and hopefully not tragic. But you know, uh, it's that's definitely in the cards, given given what's what's come. So we spoke to Pedro, and we spoke about the the struggle that uh, his people are, are waging against the government there, and um, and it was really, really, really uh, incredible to hear from him and to hear him speak in the way that he did. 
And, you know, this is something that I think so many tourists make their way to the Yucatan Peninsula, to Cancun, to Merida, to Tulum, to Puerto Vallarta, uh, pardon me, uh, Playa del Carmen, to Cozumel, uh, and on and on. There's, and, and Mexican nationals as well. So this is something that, you know, if you know anyone who lives in these places, if you live in these places, if you know people are going to visit there, tell them about this, right? Tell them about this because, you know, one of the things that Pedro said at the end of our talk together was, you know, we don't, we don't hate tourists. We actually, we love when people come to see us, to come to visit, visit us, you know, one-on-one as visitors, as guests, right? And not as tourists. And, um, and so this is what he was saying, right? That this is, this is what we, from out of, out of our grandparents and great-grandparents' lineage of, of hospitality towards the other, towards the foreigner. This is something that, you know, we refuse to lose, that we want to continue to practice. Um, but we're not going to do it with tourism. So, you know, this is an opportunity, I think, for a lot of people to, to stand in solidarity. And if that means not going to the Yucatan, you know, then maybe that's what it means. If it means getting in touch with Pedro and the Asamblea, maybe that's what it means, right? And so, you know, this never ends. And we continued with uh, a talk with my good friend, Elias Gomez Gonzalez, who's based out of uh, Guadalajara, Jalisco. And I know him from the Unitierra here in Oaxaca. And Elias and I spoke about, largely about interculturality as a kind of uh, grandchild of, of interreligiosity, right? So for, for a long, long time, there have been aspects of different major religions in the world that sought to, philosophers will say, that sought to find a way, an ecumenical way to to bridge or at least construct the bridges between religions, right? To find the meeting point and the language for the meeting point among different peoples and different cultures that at least apparently, at least superficially, uh, hold worldviews that are not only inherently contradictory to the other's worldviews, but even hostile. And so today we refer to this, you know, this, this kind of philosophizing as, as interculturality, in part because not everyone's religious, but, you know, so he could use the term culture as a stand-in for, for religion. <coughs> Excuse me. And so we spoke, we spoke at length about the notion of plurality, the notion of difference and diversity, and how the sentiment here in Mexico that's happening as a result of the, the vast and very, very rapid construction and inundation of over-tourism as well as uh, migration, uh, that there is this sentiment that there are two Mexicos, right? That there is one that exists for the rich, for rich Mexicans and for foreigners, and then the other one for everyone else, right? And this is something that, you know, I think if you're an English speaker, this is extremely, extremely important for you to understand. This isn't just... Um, you know, this is, these aren't just ideas. These aren't just like someone imagining things. This is the, the, the perceived lived um, understanding of what's happening right now across the board, right? And that it's nothing new either. It's just become more concentrated, more exacerbated by the movement. And of course, you know, this, these stratified uh, aspects of the society uh, are not just coming from outside. In fact, you know, the Mexican government has been inviting this clearly over the course of the pandemic and, and previously. And so we talked about this, this the basis for encounter, the basis for um, learning among 
peoples from different places, right? And that there is always this plurality, this diversity of difference among a people, even if the people claim the same, you know, nation, uh, gender, sexuality, uh, race, etc. Right? All of those things. There's always plurality within them, right? And that this plurality or diversity is is not just needed, but a mandatory, obligatory for uh, hospitality to arise, right? This way of entering into, however slowly, friendship with uh, the foreigner or the local or the other, the neighbor, the stranger, right? That hospitality is the basis for the possibility of interculturality arising in our time, right? And so how do we find both as locals, as foreigners, as, um, as expats, as, as, uh, as, as guests, as visitors, as hosts, how do we find a way and how can we find a way among each other, with each other, in times of, you know, ever-increasing hostility, ever-increasing uh, inequality, to, to court and conjure that hospitality, right? And so that, that was a, a big part of what Elias and I spoke of. And then I, we turned towards a, a subject, a theme of the pod that, that doesn't really get talked about much, right? But which is really, really important which is uh, the, the voice, the viewpoint of the worker, right? Because at the end of the day, the industry is supported by the people that work in it, right? And so this is, they are uh, the threshold. The workers are the threshold, the bridge um, between the, the tourist who comes with their expectations and money, typically, and and the business owners, the industry, uh, who, who invites them in that way, typically, right? And so within the context of the working class, within the context of the people who are tourism workers, how, especially in Mexico, how can they, we understand ourselves as holding a certain amount of power, in the conversation, right? Because if you live in a place, if you're from a place and the very work you contribute to is destroying your place and destroying your capacity to live in that place, destroy your capacity to, to just even get by in that place. And, and not to mention the culture and, and, uh, you know, all of the, the, um, the invisibles, the invisible factors, what can be done? Right? How can, can can we proceed, or how can we proceed differently? So this is a really, really important question. In part because in Mexico, it's not really, it hasn't really been asked. I don't think it hasn't really been considered too much. Whereas in places like Barcelona or Venice or even Paris or London, you know, the most visited cities in the world, um, you have. Often, not always, but often a sense of solidarity among the people, among, among the tourism workers. Not always, but, um, you know, usually it's broken up among the, the specific aspects of the industry. For example, hotels or, uh, or, or museums and things like that, right? So, so that was um, a really, really important uh, conversation that we had and more or less coming to this conclusion that, you know, the tourism industry and even all of its um, kind of um, green versions, you know, the, the eco, the sustainable, the regenerative and, you know, everything else, that each one of them really uh, lacks philosophy, or a philosophy, right? Outside of this notion of we're, we're going to do this, like we're not going to contribute any garbage or plastic or, you know, um, we're going to do only walking tours and things like that, right? 
we're not going to use cars, etc. That the philosophy that's lacking is the very history within which these companies exist within, right? The, the, the history of the tourism industry and how it, how it began and its consequences in the world outside of, you know, the most obvious things. And so there's a lack of history and there's a lack of a sense of consequence because of that lack of history. And what might come out of that, if it, if it did change, right, if people did become more conscious about these things, would be uh, a philosophy that reflects uh, in detail, clearly, um, the, the consequences of, of, its, of its existence, of people's willingness to proceed as if it's necessary and mandatory in the world, and how it might be otherwise. And so that, that interview uh, was with uh, Maria and Sergio Yeo uh, here in, in Oaxaca. And finally, we spoke with Yasnaya Aguilar about identity, cultural appropriation, uh, and the possibility of, of pilgrimage, right, as opposed to tourism. That was a really really fascinating uh, interview uh, conversation in part because, you know, it had a lot to do with the notion of who you are uh, overseas, right? Um, And generally, up until maybe the last five years, but surely continuing, is the notion that you are identified first and foremost by the nation state, right? Your passport, which country you came from. And that's more or less uh, the, the, you know, what, what allows people to judge. Um, and, and so that was really fascinating because at the end of the day, um, you know, Yasnaya's work has so much to do with this notion of our sense of national identity, especially being fraudulent and fabricated, right? Because at the end of the day, you know, even growing up in in Toronto, in Canada, it was very clear to me that I had nothing in common from, you know, a rural farmer in, in Alberta. I had nothing in common with, um, you know, someone from uh, Nunavut in the Arctic, right? Almost nothing, right? And that the only thing that, that bound us together were these, uh, these lines that were drawn on the map, however many decades or centuries ago, right? And then, of course, the ensuing uh, dominant culture that's, you know, kind of uh, force-fed through, through television and, you know, the cell phone and, and everything else. But at the end of the day, um, you know, it's not only that you have nothing in common with them, or if what you do have is very little, fabricated, fraudulent, etc., but you never actually meet those people, right? And that this notion of who you are through, through a, the lens of a passport um, has very little to do with how you are overseas, right? Um, and that we have the capacity to undo the, like, for example, the ugly American stereotype, right? Not all Americans, not all people from the United States are ugly, <laughs> right? Surely, I mean, I've met some um, misbehaved ones over the years, but, you know, I've met a lot of such people uh, from a lot of different countries and places throughout the world. And, uh, you know, there's there's uh, there's little that it has to do with that, with... with uh, nation states, for example, because at the end of the day, what happens is we just end up generalizing. We end up reducing the other, right? And this is what happens to tourists when they come and visit a place, right? They all get lumped in the same category, right? And maybe, maybe if there's like a a slight or slightly long interaction with someone else, they'll ask you where you're from, right? And that'll give them the idea, their idea based on you know, again, your passport, who they think you are, right? And on and on. And this is why, you know, this this leads us to this question of, you know, if you're an expat, 
and I'm speaking here to, to Anglophones, I imagine, for the most part. If you're an expat, if you're a digital nomad, if you're a tourist in another place, right? Because English is the tourist language. You can go almost anywhere in the world. As long as you're not too far off the beaten path, you'll be fine, right? And so what is our, your responsibility in, you know, arriving in a place and because at the end of the day, without any sincere, enduring um, depth in conversation with the people that are hosting you, the people in the places that you go to, they're just going to continue to contend with you as a tourist, as a white person, or as a black person, or as an American, or as a, a French person, right? Or, or on and on and on, or as a man, a woman, etc., right? And so it is, it is beyond necessary, again, I'll say it's mandatory, that there is some kind of uh, willingness and and you know among the among visitors in in places not their own among tourists in places not their own to take this as their marching orders that the more they proceed as a tourist the more they turn the world into a touristic place okay which is to say that everyone is just generalized Everyone is generalizing, everyone is reducible, and everyone is uh, reductive, right? And that the, the continuation of this, um, of essentially a, a manner of prejudice, right? Because that's, that's all it is, generalizing and stereotyping and re re reducing other people to X, X, you know, whatever, fill in the blanks, is... It's just prejudice. And so the unwillingness to engage with the people that are hosting you, right? The unwillingness to engage with your neighbors is the promise and invitation that prejudice continues snowballing, essentially, because the movement, the hypermobility is not going to stop, okay? And it brings prejudice with it anywhere it goes, and it, as it deepens, so does prejudice. Okay, so this is this is what I've what I've come to. Right, this is part of what I've learned over the course of the last eight months. If we are to create as as Anglophones, as visitors, tourists, locals, etc., people who are on perhaps you know both sides of the spectrum, who are both. Um, uh, locals, but people who weren't born here, for example, right? The marching orders, the 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 mandatory uh, movement of our times is in the neighborhood, is among the people that we live with, even if we have nothing to do with them. Okay, this is how it's done. Okay, it's the only way. It's the only way because we all know that the industry is going to continue to, to deepen itself as, as late stage capitalism and just the pressures of modern post-pandemic life, if you want to call it that, continue to bear down on, on, on working people, right? And that the, the vacation will offer them a week or two, right? But that week or two is cannot be uh, a vacation in the sense of vacating one's obligations. Okay, it cannot be. Because, I mean, all we have left then is just this cycle where we have escaping one thing to come back to the other, escaping that to get to the other, and on and on and on. Okay. So anyways, Fuera los bárbaros de Oaxaca. The barbarians of Oaxaca get out. And I guess to finish, I'd like to, I'd like to sum it up. I'd like to 
consider and reflect upon Gustavo's uh, proposed title for the project in this way. What if the barbarian in his proposal wasn't a person, but a condition, right? For the sake of ease, we could call it barbarianism, right? What if it was something like uh, barbarianism of Oaxaca, get out, right? How would we approach that then? How would we accomplish that then, right? Because the barbarian, at least among the Greeks, was just someone who couldn't speak the local language, right? So how do we proceed then? How do we come to speak a language, not just of local people, not just of their colonizers, right? But how can we begin to speak to each other in a way that conjures a language and a way of, of communicating, a way of interacting from and on the tongue that, that does away with foreignness, right? Little by little, at least among the people who live in that place, right? Foreignness will always be there. But the more foreign we are to our neighbors, the more we invite this prejudice, right? That has certainly been inviting resentment and hatred um, in this country that, um, you know, at the end of the day, if we don't act on it, um, it's just going to get worse and worse. And, well, you know, I don't want to start talking about what might happen, but there is already, uh, there are already stories of violence in the air, okay, because of it. So this is where we are. This is when we are. And, um, you know, may we not forget, may we remember uh, in our days that um, we're needed. And this is part of it. So a deep bow once more to the Unitiera, Oaxaca, to Gustavo, uh, and to all of you who have listened. And um, thank you. Thank you. We'll see you in season three. Thank you for listening to the End of Tourism podcast. If you'd like to get updates on new episodes, click subscribe on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you're listening. You can now support our work, ensuring it continues, and joining the conversation via our Patreon account at patreon.com slash theendoftourism. That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com slash theendoftourism. You can also follow us on social media under the handle The End of Tourism. Until then, farewell, friends.